0: Section 11 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 5, by Alexander Dumas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Denham. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 5, by Alexander Dumas section eleven there was a moment of silence this fable so atrociously ingenious was simply and impressively narrated and with an air of candour well contrived to impose on the magistrate or at least to suggest grave doubts to his mind derues with his usual cunning had conformed his language to the quality of his listener Any tricks, profession of piety, quotations from sacred books, so largely indulged in when he wished to bamboozle people of a lower class, would here have told against him. He knew when to abstain, and carried the art of deception far enough to be able to lay aside the appearance of hypocrisy. He had described all the circumstances without affectation, and if this unexpected accusation was wholly unproved, it yet rested on a possible fact, and it did not appear absolutely incredible. The magistrate went through it all again, and made him repeat every detail, without being able to make him contradict himself, or show the smallest embarrassment. While interrogating Deroux, he kept his eyes fixed upon him, and this double examination being quite fruitless only increased his perplexity. However, he never relaxed the incredulous severity of his demeanour, nor the imperative and threatening tone of his voice. "'You acknowledge having been at Lyons," he asked. "'I have been there.' "'At the beginning of this examination you said you would explain the reason of this journey later.' i am ready to do so for the journey is connected with the facts i have just narrated it was caused by them explain it i again ask permission to relate fully i did not hear from versailles i began to fear monsieur de lamotte's anxiety would bring him to paris bound by the promise i had made to his wife to avert all suspicion and to satisfy any doubts he might conceive and must i add also remembering that it was important for me to inform him of our new arrangements and of this payment of a hundred thousand livres that payment is assuredly fictitious interrupted monsieur de lamotte we must have some proof of it i will prove it presently answered derues so i went to buisson as i have already told you on my return i found a letter from madame de la motte a letter with a paris stamp which had arrived that morning i was surprised that she should write when actually in paris i opened the letter and was still more surprised i have not the letter with me but i recollect the sense of it perfectly if not the wording and i can produce it if necessary Madame de Lamotte was at Lyon with her son, and this person, whose name I do not know, and whom I do not care to mention before her husband. She had confided this letter to a person who was coming to Paris, and who was to bring it me, but this individual, whose name was Marquis, regretted that, having to start again immediately, he was obliged to entrust it to the post this is the sense of its contents. Madame de Lamotte wrote that she found herself obliged to follow this nameless person to Lyon, and she begged me to send her news of her husband, and of the state of his affairs, but said not one single word of any probable return. I became very uneasy at the news of this clandestine departure, i had no security except a private contract annulling our first agreement on the payment of one hundred thousand livres and that this was not a sufficient and regular receipt i knew because the lawyer had already refused to surrender Monsieur de lamotte's power of attorney i thought over all the difficulties which this flight which would have to be kept secret was likely to produce and i started for lyons without writing, or giving any notice of my intention. I had no information. I did not even know whether Madame de Lamotte was passing by another name, as at Versailles, but chance decreed that I met her the very day of my arrival. She was alone, and complained bitterly of her fate, saying she had been compelled to follow this individual to Lyons. But that very soon she would be free and would return to paris but i was struck by the uncertainty of her manner and said i should not leave her without obtaining a deed in proof of our recent arrangements she refused at first saying it was unnecessary as she would so soon return but i insisted strongly i told her i had already compromised myself by telling Monsieur de Lamotte that she was at Versailles, endeavouring to procure an appointment for her son. That since she had been compelled to come to Lyon, the same person might take her elsewhere, so that she might disappear any day, might leave France without leaving any trace, without any written acknowledgment of her own dishonour. And that when all these falsehoods were discovered, I should appear in the light of an accomplice, I said also that as she had unfortunately lodged in my house in Paris, and had requested me to remove her son from his school, explanations would be required from me, and perhaps I should be accused of this double disappearance. Finally, I declared that if she did not give me some proofs of her existence, willingly or unwillingly, I would go at once to a magistrate my firmness made her reflect my good monsieur derues she said i ask your forgiveness for all the trouble i have caused you i will give you this deed to-morrow to-day it is too late but come to this same place to-morrow and you shall see me again i hesitated i confessed to let her go ah she said grasping my hands Do not suspect me of intending to deceive you. I swear that I will meet you here at four o'clock. It is enough that I have ruined myself, and perhaps my son, without also entangling you in my unhappy fate. Yes, you are right. This deed is important, necessary for you, and you shall have it. But do not show yourself here. If you were seen, I might not be able to do what I ought to do tomorrow you shall see me again i swear it she then left me the next day the twelfth of march i was exact at the rendezvous and madame de lamotte arrived a moment later she gave me a deed authorizing her husband to receive the arrears of thirty thousand livres remaining from the purchase-money of buisson-souef i endeavoured again to express my opinion of her conduct she listened in silence as if my words affected her deeply we were walking together when she told me she had some business in a house we were passing and asked me to wait for her i waited more than an hour and then discovered that this house like many others in lyons had an exit in another street and i understood that madame de la motte had escaped by this passage, and that I might wait in vain. Concluding that trying to follow her would be useless, and seeing also that any remonstrance would be made in vain, I returned to Paris, deciding to say nothing as yet and to conceal the truth as long as possible. I still had hopes, and I did not count on being so soon called on to defend myself. I thought that when i had to speak it would be as a friend and not as an accused person this sir is the explanation of my conduct and i regret that this justification so easy for myself should be so cruelly painful for another you have seen the efforts which i made to defer it monsieur de la motte had heard this second part of Derues' recital, with a more silent indignation. Not that he admitted its probability, but he was confounded by this monstrous imposture, and, as it were, terror-stricken by such profound hypocrisy. His mind revolted at the idea of his wife being accused of adultery, but while he repelled this charge with decision— he saw the confirmation of his secret terrors and presentiments, and his heart sank within him at the prospect of exploring this abyss of iniquity. He was pale, gasping for breath, as though he himself had been the criminal, while scorching tears furrowed his cheeks. He tried to speak, but his voice failed. He wanted to fling back at Darou the names of traitor and assassin, and he was obliged to bear in silence the look of mingled grief and pity which the latter bestowed upon him. The magistrate, calmer, and master of his emotions, but tolerably bewildered in this labyrinth of cleverly connected lies, thought it desirable to ask some further questions. "'How?' said he did you obtain this sum of a hundred thousand livres, which you say you paid over to Madame de Lamotte? I have been engaged in business for several years, and have acquired some fortune. Nevertheless, you have postponed the obligation of making this payment several times, so that Monsieur de Lamotte had begun to feel uneasiness on the subject. This was the chief reason of his wife's coming to Paris.' One sometimes experiences momentary difficulties which presently disappear. You say you have a deed given you at Lyon by Madame de Lamotte, which you were to give to her husband. It is here. The magistrate examined the deed carefully, and noted the name of the lawyer in whose office it had been drawn up you may go he said at last what exclaimed monsieur de la motte derues stopped derues stopped but the magistrate signed to him to go intimating however that he was on no account to leave paris but said monsieur de la motte when they were alone th- this man is indeed guilty my wife has not betrayed me She." forget her duties as a wife she was virtue incarnate ah i assure you these terrible calumnies are invented to conceal double crime i throw myself at your feet i implore your justice rise monsieur this is only a temporary examination and i confess that so far he comes well out of it for imagination can hardly understand such a depth of deceit. I watched him closely the whole time, and I could discover no sign of alarm, no contradiction in either face or language. If guilty, he must be the greatest hypocrite that ever existed. But I shall neglect nothing. If a criminal is allowed to flatter himself with impunity, he frequently forgets to be prudent and i have seen many betray themselves when they thought they had nothing to fear patience and trust to the justice of both god and man several days passed and derues flattered himself the danger was over his every action meanwhile was most carefully watched but so that he remained unaware of the surveillance a police officer named Mutel distinguished for activity and intelligence beyond his fellows, was charged with collecting information and following any trail. All his bloodhounds were in action, and hunted Paris thoroughly, but could trace nothing bearing on the fate of Madame de Lamotte and her son. Mutel, however, soon discovered that in the Rue Saint-Victor—the Rue had failed three successive times that he had been pursued by numerous creditors, and been often near imprisonment for debt, and that in 1771 he had been publicly accused of incendiarism. He reported on these various circumstances, and then went himself to Derues' abode, where he obtained no results. Madame Derues declared that she knew nothing whatever, and the police having vainly searched the whole house, had to retire. Derues himself was absent. When he returned he found another order to appear before the magistrate. His first success had encouraged him. He appeared before the magistrate accompanied by a lawyer, and full of confidence, complaining loudly that the police, in searching during his absence, had offended against the rights of a domiciled Burgess, and ought to have awaited his return. Affecting a just indignation at Monsieur de Lamotte's conduct towards him, he presented a demand that the latter should be declared a calumniator, and should pay damages for the injury caused to his reputation. But this time his effrontery and audacity were of little avail the magistrate easily detected him in flagrant lies. He declared at first that he had paid the hundred thousand livres with his own money, but when reminded of his various bankruptcies, the claims of his creditors, and the judgments obtained against him as an insolvent debtor, he made a complete volte-face, and declared he had borrowed the money from an advocate named Duclos, to whom he had given a bond in presence of a notary in spite of all his protestations the magistrate committed him to solitary confinement at fort as yet nothing was publicly known but vague reports and gossip carried from shop to shop circulated among the people and began to reach the higher classes of society The infallible instinct which is aroused among the masses is truly marvellous. A great crime is committed, which seems at first likely to defeat justice, and the public conscience is aroused. Long before the tortuous folds which envelop the mystery can be penetrated, while it is still sunk in profound obscurity, the voice of the nation, like an excited hive, buzzes around the secret. Though the magistrate's doubt— the public curiosity fixes itself, and never leaves go. If the criminal's hiding place is changed, it follows the track, points it out, descries it in the gloom. This is what happened on the news of Deroux's arrest. The affair was everywhere discussed, although the information was incomplete, reports inexact, and no real publicity to be obtained. The romance which Deroux had invented by way of defence, and which became known as well as Monsieur de Lamotte's accusation, obtained no credence whatever. On the contrary, all the reports to his discredit were eagerly adopted. As yet, no crime could be traced, but the public presentiment divined an atrocious one. Have we not often seen similar agitations? the names of bastide of castin of papavoine had hardly been pronounced before they completely absorbed all the public attention and this had to be satisfied light had to be thrown on the darkness society demanded vengeance derues felt some alarm in his dungeon but his presence of mind and his dissimulation in no wise deserted him and he swore afresh every day, to the truth of his statements. But his last false assertion turned against him. The bond for a hundred thousand livres which he professed to have given to Duclos was a counterfeit which Duclos had annulled by a sort of counter-declaration made the same day. Another circumstance intended to ensure his safety only redoubled suspicion. On April 8th, notes payable to order, to the amount of 78,000 livres, were received by M. de Lamotte's lawyer, as if coming from Madame de Lamotte. It appeared extraordinary that these notes, which arrived in an ordinary stamped envelope, should not be accompanied by any letter of advice, and suspicion attached to Madame de Roux, who hitherto had remained unnoticed. An inquiry as to where the packet had been posted soon revealed the office, distinguished by a letter of the alphabet, and the postmaster described a servant-maid who had brought the letter and paid for it. The description resembled the Derue's servant, and this girl much alarmed acknowledged, after a great deal of hesitation, that she had posted the letter in obedience to her mistress's orders. Whereupon, madame derues was sent as a prisoner to fort l'eveque and her husband transferred to the grand chatelet on being interrogated she at length owned that she had sent these notes to monsieur de lamotte's lawyer and that her husband had given them her in an envelope hidden in the soiled linen for which she had brought him clean in exchange all this certainly amounted to serious presumptive evidence of guilt and if derues had shown himself to the multitude which followed every phase of the investigation with increasing anxiety a thousand arms would have willingly usurped the office of the executioner but the distance thence to actual proof of murder was enormous for the magistracy derues maintained his tranquillity always asserting that Madame de Lamotte and her son were alive, and would clear him by their reappearance. Neither threats nor stratagems succeeded in making him contradict himself, and his assurance shook the strongest conviction. A new difficulty was added to so much uncertainty. A messenger had been sent off secretly with all haste to Lyons his return was awaited for a test which it was thought would be decisive. One morning Derue was fetched from his prison, and taken to a lower hall of the conciergerie. He received no answers to the questions addressed to his escort, and this silence showed him the necessity of being on his guard, and preserving his imperturbable demeanour whatever might happen. On arriving, he found the Commissioner of Police, Mutel, and some other persons. The hall, being very dark, had been illuminated with several torches, and Derues was so placed that the light fell strongly on his face, and was then ordered to look towards a particular part of the hall. As he did so, a door opened, and a man entered. Derues beheld him with indifference, and seeing that the stranger was observing him attentively, he bowed to him as one might bow to an unknown person whose curiosity seems rather unusual. It was impossible to detect the slightest trace of emotion. A hand placed on his heart would not have felt an increased pulsation. Yet this stranger's recognition— would be fatal. Mutel approached the newcomer and whispered, Do you recognize him? No, I do not. Have the kindness to leave the room for a moment. We will ask you to return immediately. This individual was the lawyer in whose office at Lyon the deed had been drawn up, which Deroux had signed, disguised as a woman, and under the name of marie francoise perrier wife of the Sieur de la motte a woman's garments were brought in and derues was ordered to put them on which he did readily affecting much amusement as he was assisted to disguise himself he laughed stroked his chin and assumed mincing airs carrying effrontery so far as to ask for a mirror "'I should like to see if it is becoming,' he said. "'Perhaps I might make some conquests.' The lawyer returned. Derues was made to pass before him, to sit at a table, sign a paper, in fact to repeat everything it was imagined he might have said or done in the lawyer's office. This second attempt at identification succeeded no better than the first. The lawyer hesitated, then understanding all the importance of his deposition he refused to swear to anything and finally declared that this was not the person who had come to him at lyons i am sorry sir said droux as they removed him that you have been troubled by having to witness this absurd comedy do not blame me for it but ask heaven to enlighten those who do not fear to accuse me as for me knowing that my innocence will shortly be made clear, I pardon them henceforth. Although justice at this period was generally expeditious, and the lives of accused persons were by no means safeguarded as they are now, it was impossible to condemn Derues in the absence of any positive proofs of guilt. He knew this, and waited patiently in his prison for the moment when he should triumph over the capital accusation which weighed against him. The storm no longer thundered over his head, the most terrible trials were passed, the examinations became less frequent, and there were no more surprises to dread. The lamentations of Monsieur de Lamotte went to the hearts of the magistrates, but his certainty could not establish theirs, and they pitied but could not avenge him in certain minds a sort of reaction favorable to the prisoner began to set in among the dupes of derues seeming piety many who at first held their peace under these crushing accusations returned to their former opinion the bigots and devotees all who made a profession of kneeling in the churches of publicly crossing themselves and dipping their fingers in the holy water and who lived on cant and repetitions of Amen and Hallelujah talked of persecution, of martyrdom, until Roux nearly became a saint destined by the Almighty to find canonization in a dungeon. Hence arose quarrels and arguments, and this abortive trial, this unproved accusation, kept the public imagination in a constant ferment. To the greater part of those who talk of the Supreme Being, and who expect His intervention in human affairs, providence is only a word, solemn and sonorous, a sort of theatrical machine which sets all right in the end, and which they glorify with a few banalities proceeding from the lips, but not from the heart. It is true that this unknown and mysterious cause which we call God or chance, often appears so exceedingly blind and deaf that one may be permitted to wonder whether certain crimes are really set apart for punishment when so many others apparently go scot-free. How many murders remain buried in the night of the tomb? How many outrageous and avowed crimes have slept peacefully in an insolent and audacious prosperity? We know the names of many criminals, but who can tell the number of unknown and forgotten victims? The history of humanity is twofold, and like that of the invisible world, which contains marvels unexplored by the science of the visible one, the history recounted in books is by no means the most curious and strange. But without delaying over questions such as these, Without protesting here against sophistries which cloud the conscience and hide the presence of an avenging deity, we leave the facts to the general judgment, and have now to relate the last episode in this long and terrible drama. Of all the populous quarters of Paris which commented on the Affaire de Roux, none showed more excitement than that of the grève and amongst all the surrounding streets none could boast more numerous crowds than the Rue de la Motellerie. Not that a secret instinct magnetized the crowd in the very place where the proof lay buried, but that each day its attention was aroused by a painful spectacle. A pale and grief-stricken man, whose eyes seemed quenched in tears, passed often down the street hardly able to drag himself along. It was Monsieur de Lamotte, who lodged, as we have said, in the Rue de la Motellerie, and who seemed like a spectre wandering round a tomb. The crowd made way and uncovered before him. Everybody respected such terrible misfortune, and when he had passed, the groups formed up again, and continued discussing the mystery until nightfall. End of section 11. Reading by Tom Denham.